Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. So there's uh, absolutely no question in my mind that we're on the verge of some very serious, serious war. And I'm not hyperbolic. I'm really not. I'm not afraid. I don't live in fear. But Iran has now warned of a preemptive action against Israel in the coming hours. Not in the coming days, not in the coming weeks, not in the coming months. In the coming hours, as Israel is preparing a ground offensive on the Gaza. Tehran has repeatedly warned that a ground invasion would be met with a response from other fronts. And guess who's going to Israel today? The President of the United States. First and foremost, to what end? I I mean, I'm grateful that America's taking a position, but of what earthly use is Joseph Robinette Biden going to be in Israel? Nobody's afraid of him. Nobody cares. And I don't want to give them a target. How about that? He may not be my, my, my favorite guy, but he's the president of the United States. I don't want to put him in the air when Iran is threatening. Because that's how Iran and many of these Islamic terrorists operate. Everything is symbolic. Iran's top diplomat and president, Ibrahim Raisi, has said time was running out to reach a political solution, and warned against the expansion of the Israel-Hamas war to other fronts. Amir Abdullahayn said on Monday that the resistance leaders will not allow Israel to do whatever it wants in Gaza. You know, let me share with you what I have to say to all of these people and everyone who continues. Now you got newsrooms where people are fighting one another in the newsroom over how they're handling the coverage of the story. Proportionality? Does proportionality mean that the IDF should behead Palestinian children? That's what I want to know because that would be proportionality. Does it mean that the IDF should rape Palestinian uh, women? and shoot Palestinian grandparents in front of their families? Is that what proportionality means? Because that, that's what proportionality would sound like to me, considering what was done. But of course, no. The Jewish people in Israel aren't going to do that. They keep trying to figure out how they can cause the least amount of damage to the civilians and to the infrastructure and the blah, blah, blah. Look, this is war on Hamas. And the war on Hamas is a direct result of the Hamas terrorists' war on the Jews in the kibbutz, on the Jews at the music festival, and now lobbing bombs left and right. 
And now, of course, Hezbollah jumping in, which means that Iran has a hand in all of this, something that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. But, you know, this is, this is obviously going to be very ugly. Anybody who thought that Israel could go in there and pummel Gaza with air and artillery strikes and not flatten neighborhoods and not kill thousands of people in Gaza, mostly civilians, is delusional. Iran was cheering the assault that Hamas pulled off. But we weren't involved. That's what they said. So now the ground invasion has been delayed. And there are fears because there are a lot of Palestinians trapped in this enclave. Because, of course, the, the Hamas leadership said, don't leave. Don't leave. We don't want you to leave. We don't care if you die. As a matter of fact, we're kind of partial to you dying. And could you put out women and children right in the front so that we'll have lots of uh, photographs to circulate? That's just how they are. And denying it or pretending otherwise is ridiculous. The possibility of preemptive action by the resistance axis is expected in the coming hours, Iran's foreign minister, Hussein Amir Abdohalian, said in a live broadcast to state TV as he referred to his meeting with Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah on Saturday. So this is, uh, this is happening. They're going to take a preemptive action against Israel, and the President of the United States is on his way there. Does anybody think this is a good idea? Because I don't. Now, if it were a different President of the United States that I thought would actually strike fear into the hearts of Iran's mullahs or Hezbollah or Lebanon, you know, the Lebanese people or even the, the Palestinian uh, whatever. They're not Palestinian people, but the people who live in Gaza. If it were Donald Trump, they'd be fearful and it would, it would probably uh, cease fire. That's all. But, but Joe Biden? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? The White House has discussed a military response if Hezbollah actually attacks Israel. They'll have to use military force, right? They have a huge arsenal of rockets. And w w the Hezbollah forces in Lebanon would escalate this conflict. And I guarantee the likelihood of mass civilian casualties in both Israel and Lebanon will force the United States to move, to act. Because you got the Israeli military, which is now focused mostly on Gaza. If they have two fronts on which they have to fight, with missiles raining down on their bases and missiles raining down on Israel's population centers, well then... What allies going to rush in to save them? Yeah, we are. Because Iran-backed Hezbollah has fired rockets and anti-tank missiles at all these outposts and forces on the border since Sunday, a, a week ago Sunday. And Israeli airstrikes have hit several Hezbollah positions. 
Several Hezbollah operatives and several IDF soldiers have been killed, and at the same time, both sides have managed to keep the exchange of fire on a relatively low level. In other words, they've avoided all-out fighting. And so far, Hezbollah has not sent its operatives in for a ground assault or even fired long-range accurate missiles at Israeli targets. But they have missiles that will reach into the heart of Jerusalem, into the heart of Tel Aviv, everywhere. So, of course, you know, I, I love when they tell me, well, the Biden administration has been sending public and private messages to Hezbollah and Iran through third parties, warning them not to intervene in the war. Really? And, and what do you think Hezbollah and Iran say when they hear these, uh, you know, these private and public messages coming to them through, I don't know, Qatar or, or whoever? They say, we don't care. We have to intervene. And then the Biden administration goes, well, if you intervene, then we have to intervene. And just to prove we're serious, we're going to send two aircraft carriers and a bunch of warships to the eastern Mediterranean, and we're going to put more forces on alert for a possible deployment to the region as the president heads to Israel. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken had been there. He's met with all these Arab leaders in the region. And he keeps, I love the terminology that they use. It really is, it's so lame. I don't even know how else to describe it other than lame. I don't even know if that's a, a, a phrase that people use anymore. But he, Anthony Blinken said he told the Arab leaders, this is his words, that we're not fooling around. Fooling around? There's a war going on. I presume nobody's fooling around at this point. But when you start sending military assets, so many military assets to the region, and say you're in support of Israel, then you might as well jump in. The scenario of using U.S. military force if Hezbollah joins into this war is a very real possibility. But of course, the White House is pretending that's not happening. President Biden has been talking to Netanyahu. And and I look. I fear. I fear for the world. What are we going to do? You know, we've got the dysfunction in our own government. Israel has dysfunction in their government. The governments of Lebanon and uh, and Gaza and, and and the the Golan Heights and and all of the nobody has a government that functions properly or appropriately, and all of our fates rest in their hands. You know, some of the European nations are starting to get a little bit nervous. Well, you can't blame them, can you? You know, in Brussels, some ISIS character just committed murder, killed two people with the usual al-Akbar. You had a teacher in France killed. Now, these may be lone wolf attacks, but if it starts to spring up everywhere, can you say World War III? Because if you can't say it, you better start practicing. Because I don't see how this ends. I really don't. And then I got to watch, you know, the, the Republicans in the House 
211 votes Jim Jordan got, or 212. He needs 217. Come on, guys. Are you kidding me? Hakeem Jeffries got, got, you know, as many votes, or I think he got more votes from the Democrats. But you need 217 to win. Stop playing. The world is on fire. And you guys are playing in the House. Plus, I don't think you can find a better speaker than Jim Jordan. I know you can. Even Kevin McCarthy says that. But he didn't win on the first ballot. Now the second ballot's taking place. Get it done. Get it done, and we're going to hold every one of you that, that, that doesn't vote for Jim Jordan accountable for this. Stop it. Just stop it. We can't play no more. The world's on the brink of World War III, and you guys are, are playing, playing political games. You're not going to have the support of the people, not this time. Not if you do that. We need to have, uh, all Republicans need to be brought together. That's what he said he's going to do. He wrote a great letter. That way you can empower committees and committee chairs and get to get busy. We need funding for, for this uh, conflagration or whatever you want to call it in Israel. Force the vote. That's how our system works. All right. I, I'm trying to just take a couple of deep breaths. I've been very, very, very disturbed. I got up in the middle of the night and wrote an article and submitted it to a couple of papers. It's going to be published because I'm very passionate about this subject. But you know what? No matter how much writing I do, no matter how much ranting on the air I do, there's a real nervousness in me because I don't think we're prepared for what might happen and what very well might happen. Not just a, a, a remote possibility, but a distinct possibility. Don't forget to download our app, the 850WFTL app on your phone or on your computer. That way you get all the updates. And you can join in on contests and all that good stuff and listen to the podcast. My No Restraint podcasts are a must if you want to know what's going on in the world. Let me take a quick break. I'll be right back. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. So no matter what position you've taken in this discussion about what's happening in the Middle East, you've got to be feeling as queasy as I am. You just have to. And it keeps us focused on everything except what's actually probably the most relevant to any of us. It's, just, uh, it's gut-wrenching. That's all I can say. And I guess one of the things that I don't have that other people have is this ability to engage in mindless um, watching of television. Like, I know my husband is as disturbed as I am about everything that's going on, but he can, he can like take a step back and watch some stuff on television and, and kind of lose himself for an hour. I don't have that. I'm incapable of watching even a comedy when stuff is, is swirling around me like it is right now. I just can't. And I, 
and eyeing all of the moles. You know, I call it whack-a-mole. I'm watching Ukraine. The Kremlin is on the offensive. I'm watching Russia suffer some pretty heavy losses, and there's nothing worse than a, a cornered bear. And we know that Russia is the bear. This has been going on for months, years, over a year now. And there's an assault taking place on the city of Davikva. And it did not go well. The Ukraine's military claims it destroyed dozens of Russian tanks and a bunch of other armored vehicles that they killed hundreds of Russian troops and didn't lose much of their own territory. The video that was released by the Ukrainian officials, because see, while you're not watching it, I have to watch it. And it shows all this damage with artillery and bomblets dropping from drones, crashing into vehicles, and leaving them smoking on the road. This is another inflection point in this conflict. Moscow's trying to retake the offensive. They're pretty confident that Ukraine doesn't have the capacity for any kind of breakthrough, not in the South. But it's the 20th month of the war. And it really is quite obvious to me, neither side is able to significantly move the front line, which hasn't shifted much in nearly a year. Ukraine had the initiative during the summer. Now the initiative slowly shifting to Russia. Then it'll be Russia on the offensive. And this just keeps ping-ponging back and forth. And meanwhile, we're focused on the Middle East as appropriately because it's the new conflict. But Kiev is throwing thousands of troops towards the Russian lines. And more death, more destruction, more wars where people are taking sides. And if you can't wrap your mind around how perilous this is for the whole world, well, I guess that's my responsibility and my job is to keep on watching and keep on, you know, I don't report, but I analyze and then I tell you what my analysis is. And it's not good. It's just not good right now. You cannot um, understand how I've been saying for the last 20 years, tw over 20 years, that there is an Islamic terror threat to us here in the United States of America. And people have called me every name under the sun. And now... I'm listening to people like the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who said on Tuesday when he was in Albania, because of course he had a teacher in France killed, there were the two uh, Swedish football fans in Belgium that were killed, and, and Europe, he said, is seeing a rise of Islamist terrorism. In Paris, you know, why are they surprised? Has anyone looked at some of the video footage that comes out of Paris where you have tent cities of Islamic immigrants that have overtaken large portions of France, large portions of Great Britain, large portions of, of Sweden and, and the Netherlands? Do you guys not understand that all this coming together at this moment in history is terribly perilous? What you saw yesterday in Brussels tells you that people are 
vulnerable and that there is a resurgence of this Islamist terrorism. You know, it, it comes, it flares up, and then it kind of goes away, and we all forget about it. But it's not going to go away now, now that Hamas is in a war with Israel, now that we are, are anticipating Hezbollah jumping in, and Iran, now that the President of the United States has gone over there publicly to take Israel's side, now that we've sent aircraft carriers and, and ships into the Eastern Mediterranean, does anybody really believe this ends nicely? Or does anybody understand what I understand? That this is going to get much worse before it gets better. And we have to be prepared for that. And the first thing we have to do is seal that border. I don't care what anybody says. I say, I, I'm with Tom Cotton, who today calls for the deportation of foreign students who support Hamas. Get them out of our schools. It's bad enough that they've converted so many American students to this hatred of Israel and this pro-terrorist uh, attitude that they have. But there are students who we bring in from foreign countries who hate this country. Get them out. And I got to tell you, these members of Congress who hate Israel, I, I don't understand how anybody could vote for them. I really don't. You know, maybe in uh, some of these places in Michigan where Rashida Tlaib uh, gets elected, Minnesota, maybe there that kind of anti-Semitic crap can fly. But in the big picture, you better get a Jim Jordan as speaker so that these people are marginalized. I don't need AOC and all of these squad members who hate Israel, who think it's okay to minimize terrorism and freedom fighters and, and resistance fighters and all the rest of the nonsense that they spew on the floor of Congress. We better get some real candidates in there who can beat back this squad. Tell you right now. And and how how dare how dare you know these universities tolerate professors saying these horrific things? There was a George Washington professor with this pro Hamas tirade about the names of the martyrs. You know, really. She's under investigation for classroom anti-Semitism. You had one group out there in uh, California where the professor actually made all the Jewish students go on one side of the room and then accused them of being imperialists and colonialists and all the So Jewish students can't even be safe in an American college. How do you, how does a George Washington University professor mistreat her Jewish students and then post on her Instagram account that Hamas terrorists are martyrs, and this is an armed resistance. And then she uploaded dozens of posts in the days since the terrorist rampage in Israel, screenshots of which are everywhere. She praised a statement critical of anyone condemning the Palestinians' armed resistance and argues that the attacks were merely Hamas's response to Israel's genocidal intent. What genocidal intent? They gave you the territory. I don't know. 
And she's arguing that the Israelis are not being killed for being Jewish. Well, what are they being killed for? Why did you rape the women? Why did they rape the women? Somebody tell me. Because that's okay? You don't have a problem with that? You're a woman. It's not a, a, an ethnic cleansing that's going on. It's not an apartheid that's going on. It's what you asked for, a two-state solution. That's your state. Just because you don't take care of your people in that state, don't blame the Jews in Israel. Maybe if you use some of that money, instead of digging tunnels and making weapons, maybe if you use some of that money to actually care for your people, you could have a country like Israel. Calling them martyrs. Calling these terrorists martyrs. This is a professor at George Washington University. Ugh, really. I mean... I've become so disillusioned with universities. Don't send your kids to universities, your grandkids. Uh, you know, th th for what? For their, them to become mindless baboons who think terrorism is okay? Ugh. I grieve having sent my kids to those schools. Anyway, let me take a break. Stay right where you are. A lot more coming your way. And I get to hear like this ridiculous news about the uh, temporary protected status that's been reclassified for Venezuela, which provides work permits and a shield from deportation for almost half a million Venezuelans that entered before July 31st. Now, in case you're worried that about me being, uh, you know, singling out Venezuelans, let me explain something to you. The Venezuelan people deserve humanitarian parole. What I'm worried about is the fact that there is a very strong connection between Hezbollah and Venezuela. The, the late dictator Hugo Chavez got to power and then appointed a whole bunch of Venezuelan-born Lebanese individuals to all these cabinet positions and they influenced, along with a, a lot of money from Russia, and, and that, that's still going on during Nicolas Maduro's regime. So you have people in Venezuela who are collaborators between Iran and Hezbollah and the, and the Venezuelan regime. They're involved in establishing all these organized crime networks, human smuggling operations, financial networks that span the whole continent of South America and even reach here in the United States. The intelligence services from the U.S. and Israel have been talking about Iran, Hezbollah, and Venezuela, that they provide foreign operatives with all these state-sponsored cover identities and access to government resources like the state-run airline and banking systems and allow them to operate freely in the Western Hemisphere. So what does this mean? It means terrorist operatives can travel across regions and nations, can do whatever they want, illicit activities, build terrorism capabilities, all while keeping their true origins and their identities hidden. That's right. The creation of fake identities, complete with birth certificates and passports and banking and property records, all that say, oh, we were born in Venezuela. And they weren't. Back in 2020, Reuters reported that the former Venezuelan lawmaker Adel al-Zabayar 
faced accusations from U.S. federal prosecutors for his alleged involvement in a drug conspiracy, along with Nicolas Maduro, the president, that involved South American and, guess what, Middle Eastern militant groups. He was charged with aiding in the recruitment of Hezbollah and Hamas members for planning attacks against U.S. targets. Does this not concern you? Just last Monday, Maduro defended his narco-terrorist business partners. That's right. He said, we have witnessed in the past massacres and brutal atrocities against the Palestinian people. The current situation, he said, is a new apartheid system. Here we go again. So, so we're giving temporary protective status to a country where they believe that the, the Jews in Israel should be wiped out. And the Palestinian people should regain their legitimate rights to the whole thing, from the sea to shining sea. He said, the government of Venezuela holds Israel responsible for the violence. And we're letting the people come into this country and giving them work permits. Mm-hmm. All these clandestine Hezbollah agents that are being uncovered inside the United States, we don't even know the full extent of their operations. We don't. Because it's a pretty complicated mix, mix of Venezuelans who are fleeing their country's conditions and potential terror figures that are moving through the same corridors. What about national security? What about us? Maybe we ought to reconsider our approach to Venezuelan illegal immigrants because we don't know. And this could potentially lead to a catastrophic terror attack here. I will never forget the chants from Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas, death to America, death to Israel. Which part of death to America, death to Israel are you having trouble believing now? I cannot believe that there are people who don't understand that when someone tells you they want to kill you, you should believe them. And especially when they prove it. Now, it's like, and I'm talking about immigrants into this country. What about, you want to, you want to see a huge wake-up call? The IDF are in shock after realizing that Gazan workers, people they gave permission to work in Israel, were acting as spies for the Hamas. They're in shock. They're still in shock because Hamas had detailed understandings of the insides of secret IDF bases. Because you know why? Because the army sometimes uses Israeli Arab contractors for some of the building in IDF bases. So why are they in shock? I'm not in shock. It just reflects the utter insanity of this progressive-minded security political establishment that ignores and misunderstands the culture, the culture of the Arab Muslim Middle East, because now you can't deny it. For years, Israeli security officials and Israeli politicians, not to mention American security officials and American politicians, think that if only the economic situation of the Arabs is good, then we can have peace. Wrong. Wrong. Their ideological desire to massacre the Jews is greater than their desire to earn a decent living and provide for their families. That's 
That's just the truth. Now, does that mean that's true for all Arab Muslims who are living in, in Israel or traveling into Israel to work? Not necessarily. But it is a cultural thing that impacts many, if not most of them. That's why, look, it's suicidal for Israel to flood medical schools and hospitals and pharmacies and truck driving companies and bus companies with Arab workers. They're like a fifth column waiting for the moment to kill them. And this massacre of innocent Jews that are be- is being celebrated by Arab Muslims around the world, together with uh, you know AOC and a lot of Western progressives, it better change the way Israeli society looks at the Arab Muslims in Israel. Because if they're a fifth column, and I think they are, it's not just Hamas, and it's not just the ones in Gaza, it's the whole community. Gaza, Judea, Samaria, and Israeli citizens as well. So what do you do? Well, what I would do, and if I was advising uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, what I would say is forbid any Gazans, as well as the Judea and Samaria Arabs, from entering Israel for jobs. If their own leaders prefer to use international aid to pay terrorists' families instead of investing in economic development, that's not Israel's responsibility to employ them. End the affirmative action for Israeli Arab Muslims in Israeli universities and medical students that's flooding the society with Jew-hating Arab Muslims instead of more qualified Israeli Jews. It's the same thing that's going on here. Why not have loyalty tests and strict punishments for having any connection or voicing any support of enemies? It's not racist, it's realistic. And it's about time that people thought about their own self-preservation. The Israeli Jews better start thinking about it. They have to liberate Gaza from the Palestinazis. They got to fight to the end and liberate Judea and Samaria from them and ensure that only peaceful Arab Muslims remain citizens of Israel. How long will that take? I don't know. But the step, had, step one has begun. And even if this war doesn't solve step one, it's already changed the mind of many Israelis. You got to beat the enemy. You got to overcome the internal obstacles to achieving things. Because I read the end of the book. Justice is on the side of the Jewish people living in their ancestral homeland. And so is God. So act like it. That's all. All right, let me take a final break. Don't forget, coming up after me is Eric Erickson, um, then Joe Paggs and Lars Larson and the Overnight Guys. And then, of course, at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, Jen and Bill will be back with the South Florida Morning Show, followed by Brian Kilmeade at 9 o'clock and Dan Bongino at noon. And of course, I come back at three o'clock uh, tomorrow. So stay right where you are. I've got one segment left. A lot of people are rethinking a lot of their philanthropy, and that's a good thing. You know, I had this conversation with my son Derek the other day, right after all of this uh, broke, and those Harvard thirty-one Harvard organizations wrote this ne- horrific condemnation of Israel and sort of pro-Palestinian thing. And I said to him, Derek, I don't know what kind of, you know, uh, alumni you are, alumnus you are. He's pretty cheap, so I figure he does the minimal amount that's asked of him anyway. But I said, don't give another dime to Harvard. 
you know, the Wexner Foundation, which is a, a huge philanthropic organization that focuses on cultivating Jewish leadership, cut their ties with Harvard. They did. They, they, they said, how dare you? You know, what kind of response was that to Hamas attack, which killed all those people in Israel? And you see it all over, all the Ivy League universities, not just Harvard. But the Wexner Foundation summed it up, wrote to Harvard, we are stunned and sickened by Harvard's failure to take a clear and unequivocal stand against Hamas's barbaric murders of civilians in Israel, particularly after that student letter. Leslie Wexner was a billionaire retailer and used to partner with the university to fund fellowships for uh, public service professionals to, to pursue master's degrees at Harvard's Kennedy School. They donated more than $2.4 million to Harvard just in year 2021. But that's over. They're not going to do it anymore. And who can blame them? All of the people who fund these Ivy League institutions, particularly all of the Jewish people who fund them, stop. Just stop. You know, I had to stop sending money to my alma mater, Hunter. No more. You know, the, these anti-Israel, pro-terrorist statements coming out of these universities must be condemned. A billionaire named Kenneth Griffin had pledged $300 million to Harvard just at the beginning of the year. And now he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do? I don't want to give him the money. And, and, and that's going to be happening all over. A lot of CEOs are saying, what do we do? I'm not, I don't want to hire people who came up through these organizations. I think it was Bill Ackman, the, the hedge fund manager. He wrote on social media last week that he'd been asked by a number of CEOs if Harvard would release the names of members of organizations that issued the letter so they could avoid hiring them. And a billboard truck drove around campus with photos and names of the students that have signed the letter labeling them anti-Semites. Now, that's, I don't like the harassment of the student, but I don't want to hire one. I don't. I don't want to hire one. And neither do some of these, you know, Jewish CEOs and CIOs and all the rest of it. We're watching. This is one of the worst weeks at Harvard ever. These uh, stop the genocide, apartheid, Harvard, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just, just an, a shame. A real shame. So, look, I'm trying. I'm really, I'm trying to, to maintain my, my multifaceted look at the world's news, trying to bring you as much information as possible. You can't, you can't ignore what's happening in the Ukraine. You can't ignore what's happening in Congress. You can't ignore any of this. But it's just like whack-a-mole. Every time I see something that disturbs me greatly. I see something else that disturbs me greatly, and I'm just, my head is on a swivel trying to figure out which story to cover. I know it's, a, it's the same for you. So I'm going to keep doing what I do, and you keep listening, because you will get the truth here. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable, the truth. Sometimes you may really, really, really want to close your eyes and close your ears, but you can't do that. You just can't. So I thank you for your time this time. Until next time, 
My plan is to be back here tomorrow at three o'clock if it be his will and he delays his coming. I want you to remember that what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us, well, those are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, you got to be yourself and you got to stand up for what you believe in. You know, if that's what Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and AOC are doing, then they believe in some pretty terrible stuff. And if that's what they, how they believe, I don't want to silence them, but I sure don't want them leading this country. So may God bless you. May God bless Israel. May God protect our president as he travels over there. And may God bless the USA. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.